for Lesson 19, Narrative and Great Power Competition. We have three readings. Uh, one of them, the one from LSC, London School of Economics, it provides some of the strategies, actions, and actors that were taken during the Cold War in order to try to undermine Russian or Soviet active measures. And the idea is to read through this critically and perhaps we can apply some of these ideas or themes even today in a very different world, of course. Then we have a short passage from the book Unrestricted Warfare. We're going to be reading a lot more from Unrestricted Warfare later on in the year. Um, and we'll probably read these pages again. Um, I do believe that returning to this text again and again, uh, that students and certainly I uh, find value rereading this uh, because it is such a in my personal opinion, such a dense document or book, if you will. And arguably, some scholars have argued that the book Unrestricted Warfare, which is a bit of a misnomer, which we'll talk about uh, in class and plenary, is really an updated version of one of the oldest Chinese strategy texts. And that's the third reading called The uh, Six Secret Teachings from probably around 11th century BCE, some scholars believe. So what I want to do today is not necessarily talk about specific narratives of China, of Russia, of Iran. Instead, what I want to do is I want to talk about some of the ways to study or think about um, the narrative strategies or the narrative warfare of those powers in Beijing and the Kremlin and in Tehran, importantly. And so going back to this idea we had before of foundational narratives, I want you to ask yourself, if you are an Iranian citizen, you're a staff officer, let's say you're an army colonel, and you're on part of a planning team for particular missions for security, uh, defense missions, for example, and you are a true believer in the government and a true believer in the revolutionary ideals of Iran. Before you walk into that planning room, how do you view the world? What are your foundational narratives? Do you see a country literally surrounded by the U.S. military and her allies geographically? Do you see an empire that's been lost that may not be able to be regained through conquest, but through influence in the Arab capitals, like in Sana'a, Damascus, Beirut, Baghdad? Do you see a necessity of exporting revolutionary ideas in places like Yemen, that's part of your life's and your nation's mission? Do you see you housing the true ideals of what you believe is true religion or true faith and that is necessary to export or at least export the ideas behind that. And it's probably a combination of a lot of things but this is very much going to affect those staff officers and how they come up with planning recommendations or strategy recommendations for those strategic leaders and policymakers in Tehran. So that's something to think about when we think about narrative and great power competition. Where are our competitors, our near peers, 
and even in some cases adversaries, where are they coming from? How do they see the world? How do they view time? Are they thinking in terms of centuries and millennia? Are they thinking in terms of just every few years? How do they view history? Um, these are important factors in trying to understand the mindset, to understand uh, the devotion of governments with whom we might be in economic competition with. So first I want to talk about China and what some deem, what I deem, certainly in my electives, unrestricted political warfare. And that is China's influence perhaps can be, um, and this is a bit of an oversimplification, but it can be seen through the light of a slow burn global policy through a thousand pricks. And this comes from Michael Pillsbury, who we'll read in the spring. Uh, he is a controversial author. Uh, he's considered a hawk by some. He's considered mainstream by others. But he talks about, and I'm quoting from uh, several pages from his uh, book, this most recent book, he talks about China's the mindset of the tradecraft is to induce complacency to avoid alerting your opponent. So you do many things that are perhaps legal, and each action doesn't necessarily raise a red flag, but altogether, the Chinese government or the, uh, the uh, excuse me, the Communist Party of China in Beijing um, may be able to further what they consider their national interests. Michael Pillsbury goes on to say, "Be patient for decades or longer to achieve victory. Decisive victories were never achieved quickly." The military is not the critical factor for winning a long-term competition and to never lose sight of Qi. This is the indirect, the unseen, and patient strategies. To seating others and to doing your bidding for you and waiting for the point of maximum opportunity to strike. From CFR, from a number of articles, we read that Chinese power perhaps is to charm or to co-opt or attacked well-defined groups and individuals abroad. So again, going back to that first lesson, that first podcast, taking advantage of ideas and trends that already exist instead of introducing new ones. According to the New York Times, Chinese approaches each individually are more subtle, winning support for a trade and foreign policy agenda intended to boost, to boost its geopolitical standing. From CFR, again, many soft power efforts are seen by publics as benign. And from the Chinese government itself, from a spokesman, this is a war with lots of battles. Chinese influence approaches throughout the world follow certain narratives, such as modernization, trade, and prosperity for all. They claim a zero-sum game, a win-win. But arguably, the Chinese government's actions are incongruent with its words as they have a totalitarian, profit-driven capitalist regime, providing predatory loans to desperate governments, and a future supposed sea and land highways that perhaps will unlikely be truly free. China's influence approaches to each region, country, and province differs. Example, in Australia and New Zealand over the last decade, uh, many analysts in Australia and New Zealand that we work with at CIC consider China's influence or consider themselves as victims of a Chinese slow burn thousand prick approach. In its totality, 
there are signs of potential strategic effects. But each tactic is a differing shade of gray of subtlety, of risk, of deniability, of indirectness, and insensibility. For example, they use Confucius Institutes that some academics have claimed censure criticism of Beijing, formally. Quiet, direct, and indirect donations to political campaigns. Tracking and warning Chinese nationals and Chinese study abroad students to toe, quote-unquote, the Beijing line. And news outlets in Mandarin that parrot state media biases, perhaps for citizens in countries like Australia, for example, who may be not terrific English readers. So kind of weaponizing language, if you will. Reportedly, there are pro-Beijing community leaders in some uh, areas of Australia of, that happen to be of uh, ethnic Chinese background, and they are part of certain associations that are associated with the government in Beijing. And China has a number of programs to train ethnic Chinese uh, reporters and essayists. Now I want to move to some ideas behind Russia. Specifically, what I would call active measure subversion, or the information and influence and persuasion elements of Russian active measures. Active measures is a mindset that includes that the best defense against subversion is offensive subversion strategies against adversaries, competitors, and even allies. The government of Russia have often sought geographic buffer to stave off influence and invasion. From the Mongol invasions of what became the territories of Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, to Napoleon, to Hitler, Russian governments often appear to value survival as a moral and national imperative in and of itself. The goal of survival justifies an array of ways and means. Also to survive, the Kremlin appears often to favor order over other priorities. A strong FSB, perhaps stronger than the SVR, which we'll talk about, and keeping citizens confused or reminded of the chaos of the world only to want a strong man's savior appears to be a road towards order, according to the Kremlin. And although Russian disinformation is played up in the media, the vast majority of influence, it's money, in terms of money, in terms of time, in terms of personnel, in terms of focus, in terms of effort, appears to be offline, arguably. So this is a point of contention amongst uh, Russia scholars. Some analysts suggest that online disinformation may sometimes be a purposeful distraction. That's not a conclusion, that's just an idea. From Mark Gaviotti, 2019, I'm quoting, Active measures are both an expression of Russia's strategic culture with its propensity to see the world as full of covert challenges and the operational code of the Putin regime, which considers the best defense against such threats to be a good offense. He goes on to say, of course, this does not mean that every Russian individual or institution is necessarily involved in active measures. Most are not. And furthermore, most initiatives generated should not be considered active measures, as they are often overt and well within the usual norms of political activity. However, the crowning irony is that it has become a very easy, it has become very easy for foreigners to see the Kremlin's hand behind every reversal every trip, and every Russian initiative. This is undeniably 
baleful impact. This has an undeniably baleful impact on international relations, but at the same time, likely suits Putin well, crediting him with more influence and impact in the world than he and his Russia truly deserves. Perhaps this is the greatest active measure of all. He goes on to write, the Kremlin has embraced a sense that Russia faces a Western campaign of subversion and that using active measures are the best and most logical response. Active measures make use of Russian strengths to ex exploit perceived Western weaknesses from its divisions to its commitment to free speech and open politics. We can go back to Lenin and according to Lenin, according to uh, author and scholar Stephen Powell was all about exploiting all the conflicts possibly in the ranks of the opponents. As he said, apparently, necessarily, thoroughly, carefully, attentively, and skillfully take advantage of every, even the smallest fissure among the enemies of every antagonism. This kind of harks back to the Chinese 36 stratagems which is to undermine your enemy's ability to fight by secretly causing discord between him and his friends, allies, advisors, and those within a particular country. So maybe between political parties and sects. And that, again, quoting from a translation of the 36 stratagems from China, when a country is beset by internal conflicts or when disease and famine ravage the population or when corruption and crime are rampant, then it will be unable to deal with an outside threat this is then the best time to attack, maybe not literally attack, but the best time to conduct perhaps active measures. According to James Scherer, one of the aims of the Russians pursuing what they have long called the initial period of war is to incapacitate the state as much as possible before that state is even aware that a conflict has started. According to one-time intelligence head and Georgian Anton Varia, by psychopolitics, our chief goals are effectively carried forward. To produce a maximum of chaos in the culture of the enemy is our first most important step. Our fruits are grown in chaos, distrust. A wary populace can seek peace only in our state. This was during the early days of the Cold War. According to Edward Epstein, another very controversial author uh, at the time during the Cold War, known very much as a hawk, others considered him mainstream. He says that victory will come not from any single decisive battle, but from the accumulation of gradual changes in the global balance of power. And he's talking about Russia. One superpower might find it lacks the allied resources or will to compete with the other. This assessment itself might be tantamount to losing without fighting. So in general, if you read mainstream uh, scholarly articles about Russia, and I'm very much summarizing here, you'll see an emphasis on concealing intent and means, playing the long game, a lot like Beijing, an accumulation of tactics, a focus on exacerbating existing divides in target societies, and wrapping lies around kernels of truth. To lower the confidence, especially of Russian citizens in all news outlets, to obfuscate the real story and confusion and uncertainty then create a yearning for a strong man. So disinformation, and I'm contradicting myself here from an earlier statement I've made in previous podcasts, that disinformation is not strategic. 
So I'm going to kind of play the devil's advocate to that devil's advocate position and say that disinformation, if we can, concede, can see it as a strategic approach to active measures, we find that it may include hundreds of disparate articles on just one online debate with cherry-picked facts to fog real issues. You'll have spurious stories without merit. You'll also have articles with just enough evidence-based accounts that the rest may perhaps merit attention. And you'll find columns that will retell the same story from multiple disparate perspectives and with multiple disparate conclusions simply to confuse people and to lower their confidence in certain institutions. And there's a very popular meme that goes around social media of the seven commandments of fake news. One, look for cracks in target societies. Two, create a big lie. Three, wrap the lies around a kernel of truth. Four, conceal your hand. Five, find yourself a useful idiot. Six, deny everything. And seven, play the long game. Thank you.